Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Freedom of Species brings animal advocacy to the airwaves. It's a radio program dedicated to raising awareness about issues concerning animals. This includes animal advocacy, activism, protection, conservation and importantly appreciation. The program is broadcast from the 3CR studios in Melbourne, Australia and streamed live via the 3CR website. Recent podcasts are available from both the 3CR and Freedom of Species websites. All podcasts are available via iTunes. Welcome to Freedom of Species. I'm Kate Gracie, and with me here on the panel is Emma Townsend. Nice to be here. Now, have you ever been involved in a conservation campaign or an environmental cause? Because if you have, you probably know how hard it is to get people on board, to get them truly engaged. There's so many different campaigns these days, all desperately needing oxygen, and it can be a really tough gig to be genuinely heard in all that noise. It'd be nice if just lots of passion and good intent were all that was needed to strike the right chord with the people you're trying to win over, but, geez, it so rarely happens like that. But today in the studio, we've got two highly experienced and qualified environmental communicators, Angela Rutter and Doug Gimishi, and they know heaps about effective environmental messaging. Angela's the Director of Engagement at the Australian Conservation Foundation. She leads a team in nature and climate communications, and she was behind Al Gore's numerous climate leader training sessions in the Asia-Pacific. And Doug has his own communication consultancy here in Melbourne. It's called The Framing Effect. He's also a university lecturer on the subject of communication. And you might have heard us a few weeks ago. Uh, Doug was on the show because he's also a conservation and wildlife photographer. So how can environmental advocates and campaigners get their message heard in all the noise. Angela and Doug, like how do you get people to give a damn? Thanks, Kate. Um, firstly, people do give a damn. So we find out from numerous pieces of research that we have conducted and other groups have conducted that people do genuinely care about environmental and social issues. It might not feel like that because the stories that we tend to hear in our dominant society are that people don't care, or their stories about um, the economy, for instance, which takes up a lot of airspace as opposed to issues around social justice and environmentalism. So the good news is that people do care. The question then becomes how do we actually get that to come through and for people to see that and understand that that, that is a broadly held, broadly held feeling amongst um, a range of people. And part of how we do that is we actually talk to values that um, connect all of our issues, so compassionate values. We talk to frames that also support our issues and we talk to messages that, again, um, clearly speak to action and how people can make a difference. Wow, that's really interesting to me. Sorry, can I butt in quickly? Yeah, but the, the message do. was that care is kind of hidden in the mainstream media, so it, that adds to people just accepting that maybe... That simple fact of the, the mass information that you're getting... That's right. ...is that, oh, well, maybe that's the normal, that you don't have to care, but mm-hmm. the fact is people care. It's just hidden. Yep, that's that's correct. Or is yep. it also part of our disconnect? Our disconnect, we actually don't know that we each care. Yeah, there's, um, I guess, a domin- dominant uh, cultural story that uh, people care about uh, the economy and people care about self-interest and... If you look at various bits of research, that's actually not the case. People are generally compassionate beings. Um, people um, are concerned about issues beyond themselves, whether it's um, human, whether it's animal, whether it's um, more broadly into nature. There is that strong sense of care. But our narratives um, that are told across through our media and different aspects of society really leverage self-interest and the economy being the primary beast, if you like, within our culture. Yeah, yeah. Now, I've 
I understand, you know, narrative is this new buzzword amongst communicators. And I've been hearing that word narrative used a lot in environmental circles. And when I was at uni, my um, lecturer, who was amazing, Peter Christoph, you might probably know him, mm-hmm. he was always referring to the climate change narrative. And he was just always, always, always banging on about the narrative. What did he actually mean? Yeah. Um, so narrative is basically what is the story that we're telling and how are we making sense of a string of events? So the narrative um, or the story um, is the way in which we make sense of the world. And part of the climate change narrative is complex and it often doesn't have an actor. It's often um, positioned in a way that climate change is something that is just happening. It's framed in a way that humans aren't actually responsible for it, that it's just kind of an event that's occurring and humans are Swept somewhere. up in it. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, literally. Um, so can you tell me, what are the elements of, of creating a, a compelling narrative or com- creating a compelling story? And, and which term should I be using? Yeah. I mean, story is, I guess, you know, something that's really understood by people and accessible by people. And one of the things that we're really um, working on is actually using language that's inclusive, um, not language that um, is exclusive and that is confusing for people. So let's just call it story. Okay. And um, the key elements, I guess, of good story are having clear characters in the story, um, being really clear about the role of people in the story. So people do things, people do good and bad things. People are um, often the cause for some of the um, pain and hurt that's inflicted on animals and uh, nature. Um, but people can also resolve that as well. So having clear characters, having a clear plot, um, having emotions that you draw on. Um, when you say clear plot, what do you mean a clear plot? When we're talking about, I mean, I think of a plot as in a novel. Mm. When you say a plot, what do you mean? Yeah, so having a clear sense of a sequence of events. So um, one of the ways that we actually structure stories is actually thinking about what are the challenges and the choices and the outcomes okay. um, that run through the story that you're telling. So having a coherent sequence of events with clear actors in it, clear emotions that you're drawing on. Um, and also, most importantly, for people that are concerned about um, either environmental or social issues, actually having meaningful ways that people can engage, so really plausible um, pathways for people to do something um, because often the type of things that we're talking about are quite overwhelming and if we just create a story that is about things being overwhelmed and big and out of our control it actually doesn't move people to, to action because there's no way that people can actually affect that and that's when you end up with people uh, withdrawing and just focusing very much on their own area their own circle of control and um, you know not necessarily engaging in, in civic participation. So the, these are all the elements of a of a compelling story. So they're what were they? They um, I just want to get them down. Character, yep. creating a character. Yep. Having cr- having a plot. Yep. And what were the other ones? Um, emotion. So emotion. thinking about emotion. Yeah. Thinking about what the challenge is that you're yep. setting up. The choices that people yep. can make and the outcome, uh, the result of yep. that. Um, plausible ways for people to engage. So yeah, right. you know, calling people together to be part of yep. um, a solution. So having those plausible pathways for people okay. to engage as well. And language. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So language that is um, clear, simple, um, active language. Yep. Um, doesn't create hedging. Um, so is really clear for people to um, engage in the story, be part of the story, and plain language. So we talk about um, thinking about different tests etc um, for how we communicate so if you're talking to a younger child for instance ensuring that you're communicating in a way that a child would easily understand it and also which is not to say to dumb things down it's just to say that we need to be clear and using language that is accessible for everyone as opposed to using exclusive language and technocratic language right. and also how we frame things is really critical um, so thinking about the different frames, which Doug can talk to um, in far more detail than I can. Can, can I just sort of ask, so what's hedging? Um, so hedging... Is that the exclusivity? No, no, so hedging is basically um, using terminology that creates um, doubt. So it's often putting in words that um, create obstruction of the real meaning. Yeah, right. Yeah, so you often, you often see that in... Um, academic papers. Um, Is often... that kind of avoiding, avoiding? Yeah, it? it's a little bit. It's a little bit of avoidance. It's very yeah. yes minister. Yeah. Humphreys and yes minister. Is it like we will relocate your job? Sort of, but it's like in another company. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or, or we are. Yeah. So you'd put in a few more words that yeah. tend to um, obstruct the meaning of it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 
So, Doug, we're talking about framing now. So framing is a communications term that I hear bandied around a lot, just like this narrative word. What What is framing? Is it is it the same as spin? No, it's 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 very very different. It's it's used a lot um, and in many many different ways. But it, in simple terms, it's a way of presenting data or an idea or a policy so it'll be most influential. Where it's different to things like spin, spin is is deceptive and disingenuous, and you'll have um, positioning which is relative. Where framing basically simplifies complex issues by placing greater weight on some considerations or different arguments. And there are many different times of types of framing, and I think the issue is when people use it, they um, are talking about different types of framing or they get um, mixed up with spin doctoring or positioning. But it's, it's a very genuine way of communicating. But at the end of the day, what you're really trying to do is be influential and ensure that the key things that are important uh, get across and, and drive change. Okay. So what are the essential elements or, or principles perhaps to effective framing? Uh, well, it depends which type. And I might just spend a couple of minutes talking about the different Types, yeah, sure. If, if yeah, I yeah. could, so there's a there's a broad type that I call an issue or, or concept framing, and then the other type is what I'd call an equivalence framing. And so the equivalence framing is where you take, um, say, the same information and you present it two different ways. And the classic study was um, done in late 80s where they presented some meat, and uh, one group called it um, well, one group had it presented to them as 75% lean. And the other group had it presented to them as 25% fat. Yeah, awesome. Exactly the same. Now Brilliant. let's rate it on taste, texture and all those things. And the results were, were very, very different. And we, we see that you know, not only in those type of things, but it was interesting that um, you can use it with any numbers. There was a, a study done that looked at um, planning for retirement. And when you talked about planning for retirement and you said, look, you've got 18 years to plan for your retirement – people were less engaged than if you talked about you've got 6,570 days because it engaged you more in your future self. And it occurred to me just before this show, as I was looking at the, you know, the recent climate change bill in Victoria that's, that's come through, which is fantastic for zero emissions. And you know, one way to look at that is, so what, it's going to take you 33 years to get to zero emissions? Um, whereas you, you can frame things a different way. Um, the State of the Environment report actually yesterday um, said we don't have a decent uh, comprehensive national plan to protect our landscape for the year 250. And you go, well, that's 33 years' time, and that doesn't seem too bad. But if you reframe that and say you've only got 10,000 days, that changes how people will view that issue because 10,000 days doesn't seem very much where 33 years does. So you know, that's, that's, that's one type. There, there are other types. There's what's known as goal framing where you look not at... Um, the data per se, but you look at the goal. And a study was done after the New Zealand earthquakes and they looked at what's the best way to talk about earthquake preparedness. And they could talk about if you do this, you'll survive, or another way, or you won't survive. So that's one way to present the goal. Or mm. if you look at this, you'll die. If you do it this way, you won't die. So exactly the same outcomes, mm. but presenting them from surviving, not surviving, mm. dying, um, and not dying, and we see this with um, environment. You can talk about do you want clean air or unclean air? Do you want dirty air or not dirty air? And presenting that data and those terms differently actually elicit different responses um, to people. The, the, the last, there are another couple, but the, the other type within this, what I call equivalency frames, where it's virtually exactly the same is uh, a recent one that's been in discussion. It's called an inclusion and exclusion frame. And I was thinking about this before the show because if you're talking about um, saving species, you could have the question, what species do we focus on saving or what species do we? are you happy for us to become extinct? <laughs> and it's exactly yeah. the same thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it, it drives a different behaviour. Um, what animals do you want to ensure no harm comes to during I don't know, duck hunting season or what animals uh, are you happy to have harm come to? Yeah. And it's exactly the same thing and you're looking at... It drives the point home perfectly, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that's that's the broad, you know, equivalency, what I'd call equivalency yep. frames where you have um, same information or same goals or same data and you're presenting it two different ways. So, again, it's not spin doctoring. It's very genuine. It's just two different ways to present it. The other broader one, um, which is used a lot in um, polit Political con um, political areas um, is what I call issue concept frames, and it's very. It was done by, uh, um, I guess, highlighted by a very famous um, Berkeley linguist, uh, Lakoff, when he uh, wrote a book, "Don't Think of the um, Don't Don't Think of an Elephant," and it's about talking about broader issues that change how you view the issue as a whole. So you could have um, 
a king hit. We've talked about that. Danny Green um, was talking about the king hit, and he's reframed that to a coward's punch. And that's a very different way yeah, to view it because suddenly, right. oh, it's a king hit, I'm masculine, yeah, I yeah. punch someone. Now it's a punch and it's a coward. Yep. Very different reframe. Um, one of the oil companies did it brilliantly, unfortunately, but let's reframe drilling for oil to exploring for energy. <laughs> I mean, of course we want people to explore <laughs> yeah. for energy, but I don't yeah, want yeah. them to drill for oil. Yeah. Um, we have uh, the carbon tax yeah. was um, a great um, or a bad one. Um, I, yep. I think, you know, if it had been framed a stable climate levy, it's very yep. hard to say, I don't want a stable climate. And a levy is normally known yep. for a social good. Yep. Um, and, and of course, I mean, I, this is one of my pet I mean, global warming, I don't like that as a frame. Um, warming is people would prefer to be warm than cold. doesn't yep. really say much. Um, even climate change, if you don't like the climate where you're in, climate change can be good. You know, I think it should be maybe reframed unstable climate because people don't like instability. Yep. So yep. it's it's those policies talking about exactly um, exactly the same thing but in uh, um, engaging different responses. Yeah, right. Okay. Now there's um there's one framing rule that I that I'm aware of and and I always instinctively do the wrong thing. I just do the opposite and it's that you should never negate mm. your opponent's frame. Like don't argue using their language and and don't respond from their perspective perspective mm-hmm. and I'm kind of comforted to know that I'm not the only one who does that but um can you explain why it's important not to do that and are there other sort of classic framing traps yeah, to avoid okay. as well so coming back to the uh the um book by Lakoff don't think of an elephant as soon as you've thought of an elephant that's it you're you're framed in it so um when you when you um use a frame that your competitors are using you reinforce it so the classic would be uh, Nixon going I'm not a crook okay well the whole conversation becomes about whether you are a crook or aren't you Uh, Mm. when julia gillard said it's not a tax that it Mm. was done and dusted because the whole conversation now Mm. becomes about it being a tax Mm. so by using your competitor's frame or a frame that or a perspective you don't want to take them from that reinforces it the other is um, every word invokes a frame so if we uh, say you know don't think of an elephant okay so um as soon as i said elephant that sets sets it um and um, but on the other side, if you continue to use a frame, it reinforces it as well. So you know there's a a positive side. And you know, when you look at the ACF's wonderful work, they use consistent frames. They're not bouncing around. It's a, it's a it's a constant way to to look at something. So the the sort of the the four rules are like every word evokes a frame. Words within a frame evoke a frame. So if I suddenly go, Sam picked up the peanut with his trunk. Now that could be someone picking it up with their abdomen. But as soon as I'd said elephant two minutes ago, people are yeah. now assuming mm. Sam is an elephant. Yeah, right. Um, uh, negating it um, evokes it. And probably, you know, the best example of that is uh, Life of Brian. I'm not the Messiah. That whole conversation mm. went, well, you must be because you're talking about being the Messiah. And finally, mm. um, reinforcing your frame builds on that position. Right. That's really well. interesting because I, I, I do it all the time, all the time as an advocate. You did probably, Emma, you probably well, know the, the same thing. There was an, an animal-specific example where um, recently a, a not-for-profit organisation um, had published a piece on um, the Rakali, and it was a beautiful piece, and it was very much about we, we should view it in a certain way, and it opened with a rat by any other name. And then it went mm-hmm. on to say how the Rakali is a beautiful water road and blah, 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 but they had framed it as a rat. Mm-hmm. And from that point the message was doomed because that is my point of reference. That's my frame. It is a rat. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a Rakali by any other name. Um, so yeah. that's an example of uh, wow. using it poorly. So be all right at the end in that situation <laughs> because to say you, it's a rat. Well, it's not, well it's, it's not a rat. It's a rodent. It's I wouldn't even use the word yes, rat because you. you've put it out there. But I would say a Rakali by any other name. And if it's an academic piece, of course, you're going to say it has this, 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 yeah. this. But frame it as a Rakali, yeah. a native rodent. Yep. yep. So be a bit more creative, actually, and don't use that negative frame that that person, your competitors used. Just take that moment and um, be creative, and don't use that as a standpoint mm. no, think, to launch your. Think about yeah. the think about the the values, the the um, the attitudes, the beliefs, all those things that you really want to engage and hang off, and um, base it on that. Um, Beautiful. I can't help but think of um, all those, like the government departments that use that use framing for their dubious intent. You know, like those organisational names, the Department of Natural Resources, which mm. seems like a classic case of, like, really um, 
you know, using their power for evil, not good. And their reference to the re- recreational slaughter of native water birds, which they, they talk about a sustainable harvest. Mm. So that that's mm. framing, right? Mm. Well, it is. The, 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 the Minister of Agriculture just put out her um, duck season release and it, uh, I, I think it was framed really well. Uh, not for people who disagree with duck hunting, <laughs> but it was, she said, quote, duck season is a customary trip away from many family, families and is an important economic contributor to the rural economy, bringing 26,000 licensed duck hunters to small towns and regional centres across the state. So she's tapped into uh, the, the concept of tradition, families, economics. It's legal. It's battler. It's really, really nice. And if we look back um, and what Animals Australia have, have done really nicely, I think they've tried to redefine the whole activity as why it's not a sport. And you've seen, might have seen those posters with true athletic people saying mm. it's not a sport. I think, I think there's some other opportunities. Um, they could talk about it as a, an, an, an animal welfare cruelty issue and also a, um, a pollution issue, both sound and physical, because that would be reframing it and it would be very hard for anyone to go, mm. okay, I'll, I get it has all these economic benefits and it's tradition, mm. but I agree with animal cruelty or I agree with pollution. Yeah. So if you frame it around those things, it becomes very difficult to argue yeah. against from that position, even though you could argue it as an economic benefit yep. as well. But that's, I'm talking about sit down, think of what those genuine frames are, hold on to them, and then make the discourse from those. Right. Now, if if a message needs to be framed um, for the intended audience's values and their life experience and their perspectives, that must mean then we need to reframe our message for every person we speak with. And surely... You know, the, the blue-collar worker will have a different perspective and therefore need different framing than, say, the inner-city hipster. So how the, you know, how the hell would we do that? How the hell do we frame, reframe our message for every audience we come across? You don't. Um, you fr- Framing um, is very much, again, taking the broad issues. If, I, I think if I spoke to any blue-collar worker, any hipster, anybody, and to what Angela was saying before, you know, people are generally good, decent people. And I don't think if I did a poll, 95% of the population would agree that animal cruelty is okay. I don't think they would say that. I don't think 95% of the population would say pollution's okay. So therefore, if you frame the issues, coming back to duck hunting, just as an example, around animal welfare and pollution... 95% of people can't say, look, it's okay. Mm-hmm. They might say it's okay for economics and those things are important, but your point hangs because you're basing it on decent, good, um, not values, what's the word, Andrew? Um, yeah, values, mm. I guess, as well. So okay. it's, I think messaging shifts as, as well, and I think um, the example I gave before of, you know, it's not a sport, that's not you know, strongly reframing it, but it is reframing what a sport is by using the word athletic. Um, but it's important to hang on to those um, um, important broader frames that everyone views the image through because framing is about not only what you think about but what you don't think about and what other considerations you leave out as well when you make a decision. Right, that's so really interesting. I would hope people would, mm. would view the animal welfare as a higher priority than the economic. Do you, you, do you think they, they do? I do think you? I think you're not going to get everybody. Um, but if you frame things consistently, I think over time we see change. I mean, we see that in, in South Africa with apartheid, all those things. Things change over time. I don't think it's a quick fix, but uh, none of these things are. I mean, if it was a quick, simple slogan, it was an advertising campaign, buy the new, then yes. But if we're looking at um, long-term sustainable change, then I think it does work, but it just takes time. Okay. Let's have a break with a song. Now, you've picked this song, Doug. Can you give us a very brief intro to this song, why you picked it? Yes, uh, I'm just a big Talking Heads fan oh, okay. and it seemed very, very appropriate <laughs> to have Wild Wild Life as a, as a segue. Let's do it. Community Radio is dedicated to exploring the issues that affect our future. Because I think it is something we just need to be talking about. 855am. Tune in and listen up. You're listening to Freedom of Species on 3CR Community Radio and that last song was Talking Heads Wild Wild Life. We've got Angela Russer of the Australian Conservation Foundation and Doug Gimishi of the Framing Effect Communication Consultancy here in the studio. 
and they're both environmental communicators and they're sharing their great wealth of knowledge on what makes for effective communication when advocating for our planet. Now, I want to talk to Angela again. Angela, are there beneficial emotions of an audience that you, that should be tapped into and other emotions that are like best left, left alone, best mm. avoided? Yeah, absolutely. So often the emotions that are tapped into are things like um, fear and threat. So if you think about just watching the news or listening to the news, often it will evoke a response which is very much fear-based or feelings of threat. And they are not great emotions to tap into because what tends to happen is that people um, become much more inwardly focused and focused on their self-interest rather than actually care and concerns for others. Um, That said, fear can play a role, but we need to ensure that if we're activating fear or threat, that we match it in terms of people's own pathways to action. So people feeling effective, commensurate with the type of fear and threat that we're talking about. So some of the emotions that we would think about activating and tapping into is moral outrage. Um, So rather than anger or or apathy, actually thinking about moral outrage, Um, hope and solidarity. So talking really strongly to um, what a collective can do together, so building ideas of solidarity and feelings of solidarity rather than individualistic and isolation-type responses, and also um, really focusing on action. So that's something at ACF that we look to do really frequently because often the type of issues that we're talking about, environmental issues, can be quite terrifying and they're obviously very serious. So what we're looking to do is finding ways that people can be involved in meaningful action that addresses the type of um, issues that we're talking about. And I understand that it's it's necessary to appeal to the audience's emotional values, but it's also really important to know the difference between extrinsic and intrinsic values and yeah. that you really shouldn't mix those two values. Can you define what the, what extrinsic and intrinsic values are and explain that principle of not yeah. mixing them? Yeah, sure thing. Um, so extrinsic values tend to be values that are orientated around self-interest. So they are things like um, values that tap into social status, which typically if you think about when you meet someone, often the first question that you get is, so what do you do, which kicks straight into um, you know your sort of status in terms of your um, work identity. Um, values around prestige, for instance, which advertising does incredibly well, um, you know, connects into um, values that amplify prestige and also um, authority and social recognition. So they're typically extrinsic values and what they'll tend to do is they focus very much on people's self-interest. Um, social power is another one, which is very much power over rather than power to people. Um, so they focus very much on people's self-interest as opposed to intrinsic values which are associated with concern for environmental issues and social justice issues and a whole range of other things. They're also associated with strong civic engagement. So if you're concerned about creating a compassionate society, the intrinsic values are the ones that we really need to tap into quite strongly, irrespective of the issue that you might be working on or the issues that you might care about. So some examples of those are um, environmental protection, unity with nature, so affiliation with nature, um, social justice, for instance. And the reason that you um, shouldn't mix those in terms of communications is that there's an effect where um, some values, when they're tapped into, are stronger and negate other values. So if you amplify extrinsic values, you'll tend to suppress um, environmental and social um, issue concern. So, but surely when, when we lobby the government we would still need to use extrinsic values, wouldn't we? Because let's face it, it's it's the economy and it's power that are the major motivators for politicians. So is is there a place still for using extrinsic values in our lobbying the authorities? Absolutely. Yeah, so I think um, it's similar to what Doug was saying before in terms of falling into the dominant frames. You know, the dominant frames are economy and power. um, Jobs and growth, I'm sorry. Yes, jobs Jobs and growth. growth. Let's get that correct. (laughs) Um, it doesn't mean that's where we need to go and it doesn't mean that's where we should go, um, particularly if we're trying to build broader concern for environmental and social issues. 
and in fact it works against us um, to go into those extrinsic frames. So the type of things that we would be thinking about is actually talking about our politicians as elected representatives, reminding people that they actually represent the people. They are our, our elected representatives. Talking to values that are connected with people's civic engagement. So not talking about people in the frame of a consumer, which is very much back in the economic frame and economic identity, but actually broadening that and talking about people as a role in civil society and civic engagement. I think a, a citizen was the... Citizen, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah <laughs> that's, that's right. much better term than a consumer, isn't yeah, it? Mm. Yeah, absolutely. It's a positive, positive word. Mm. Now, um, there's that guy, Tom Crompton, who's like a bit of a British comms guru, mm. and he suggested something that I found really interesting was that um, environmental advocates in, to date in, have more or less distance themselves from and they tend to distance themselves from animal activists i guess they they might see animal activists as a little bit too way out there a little bit too extreme or a little bit too i don't know a little bit too um further down the spectrum than where they're at but he says maybe we should be working they should be working together because they're both flexing the intrinsic values of people. Mm. So if environmental activists and animal activists are using that same, flexing the intrinsic muscle of people, that will actually help society go further in, you know, better longer-term outcomes. Do you agree with that? Do you think there's merit in that? Absolutely, absolutely. So Tom has written a number of really interesting papers um, that are available on um, uh uh, the internet. Um, is that Common Cause? Yeah, so Common Cause Foundation, right. um, which he is um, he started up, and yeah, there's lots of interesting papers that he's written, and one one in particular is called No Causes in Ireland, and what he talks about in that paper is that your cause is my cause is our cause. So the values that we activate um, collectively are the values that are playing out in society. So irrespective of the issues that we care about, we should all really work strongly to activating compassionate values because that will benefit and strengthen all issues. So the work that ACF does, the work that um, aid and development organisations do, the work that um, animal activist organisations do, if we're talking to the same compassionate values, that is actually going to strengthen all of our collective issues. And actually, um, that particular paper of um, Tom's, it they looked at some experiments where they activated people from WWF and another um, charity, I just can't remember it offhand, but it was a people-orientated charity, and they found that just by activating intrinsic values, people's likelihood to give to both increased. Wow. Um, whereas activating extrinsic values um, suppress that likelihood to give or to take an action with those organisations. That's an interesting outcome, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. And I think it's a really good message for civil society broadly that, you know, there's a lot of incredible organisations and people working on, you know, really complex um, issues of our time. But the overarching message is that if we work together and we look to strengthen the values that make for a society that is concerned about compassion for all living things, um, then we can all actually be stronger in our own organisations as well. Yeah, right. Um, there's a nice saying, something about if you, want to, if you want to travel quickly, go alone. If you want to travel far, go together. Mm. And that seems to That's ring right. true with that. It's mm. really nice. Now, I think there's a bit, also a bit of a tendency to rant about what sucks right now, you know, whether it be mm. industry pac- practice or various related legislation, and and how that whatever that su- whatever sucks, how that should stop, and perhaps we should be revising that approach, and maybe we should be talking more about what the future could yeah. look like rather than what's happening right now. Yeah, absolutely. So this goes back to what we talked about at the start um, in terms of people do care and often what we focus our efforts on is convincing people to care. So if we park that for a moment and accept that people do care, where we need to focus is what um, are um, effective actions for people to take and also the type of future that we might be moving towards. Um, because part of the challenge is that people don't necessarily have a picture of the alternative future and what that looks like. We're really good at railing against the current situation, um, but not necessarily at painting what the alternative future looks like. So that's part of um, what we need to do. So firstly, no, don't rant. <laughs> and then secondly, actually talk Mental to... Mental note to self. Exactly. It's rant. very easy. <laughs> um, and actually talk to the future. Um, 
but we also need to talk to the urgency of now. So it's not to say that we don't talk to the truth of the situation or the urgency of the situation. Um, we do talk to the urgency of now and the action that people need to take, but we really clearly paint a future of what is possible. Can and, I, yeah, think, sorry, can I have an example of that? Is yeah, absolutely. So if you think mind? about the way in which we generate our energy, um, for instance, yeah. there's a lot of conversation happening um, in the you know, political and public domain at the moment. And, um, you know, Australia can absolutely and is um, looking to a future where we generate our energy from the sun and the wind and the waves. Can I add, add to that? Because it's interesting in today's paper, the head of Tesla mm. said, I'll fix Adelaide's um, problems in 100 days. Bang, done. You know, I'll put, I'll put battery or packs. Or it's free. Or yeah. it's free. I mean, yeah. there's yeah. an economic frame there. But, <laughs> yeah. but it's like there's a picture of the future yeah. and it's 100 days. It's not yeah. five years. It's exactly. like, I mean, I'm, I, even, I don't understand it, but I'm convinced, you know, mm. because 100 days and we're done. Mm. Yeah. And that's a great future vision. And then I think that will flow out to all the Adelaide, or to South Australia can do it. Why can't? Exactly. Everything else. So it's really nice. And he, he must have attended one of your master classes because he said 100 days. He didn't go three and a half months or whatever, yeah. which is yeah. really boring. Yeah. But 100 days. 72,000 like, yeah. hours. <laughs> yeah, he went 100 <laughs> days, which is really neat. And people go, wow, that's nothing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Um, now, most activists I know like to use a lot of facts and figures, and mm. me included. I always, you know, because I think that's what people want. Mm. They, they want some hard evidence. They want proof mm. to be won over. But you suggest that facts and figures are not a good idea. Why is that? Mm. I guess um, firstly to say it's we're not suggesting that it's a fact-free zone, um, but facts and figures should support um, the overarching statement. So people relate to story and emotion and what we're suggesting is that that would be the leading, that would be what you lead with, and then you can support with facts and figures as opposed to um, the facts and figures becoming the headline and expecting that that will actually convince people. Right. And it, I suppose also facts and figures too can be a bit boring. Yeah. It doesn't really speak to the person. It just Absolutely. doesn't speak to the heart, yeah. I guess. Mm. Yeah. So even when using facts and figures, thinking about ways that make it more accessible and relatable for people, for yeah, instance. Yeah, right. So nine out of ten Australians, nine out of ten people mm. rather than mm. just 90%. I mean, if, you, if, you, if you look at an animal welfare issue, that um, piece, A Bloody Business in Four Corners, um, four years ago, it was an animal welfare issue. I mean, I don't think anyone would know the number of animals, mm. but it was it was talking about the issue, the frame of animal welfare. It wasn't there were 48 cows, et cetera, et cetera. So I think talking to the issue, as Angela said, is... Mm. is is the key, and then back it with figures. Okay. Can I just um, add to how you were saying include the future story, mm. the future narrative of where we're headed? I'm just thinking back to the Great Forest National Park initiative at the moment where they're trying to, in Victoria, join up all these um, forests so they can still be there, um, create a national park scenario. And in, they're saying it'll create 750 jobs like that because you need park rangers and blah 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 and the other argument is that you've also got the hazelwood um power plant that's been shut down and it's all a big you know we're going to lose 200 jobs and they're still blowing that horn does it help do you think to that is an example though isn't it of we're going to have a national park a future thing or do you think is that kind of a in your opinion a good way for people to see into the future? Yeah, I mean, it's certainly one way of framing yeah, the future. It uses the economics as well. Yeah, so you could also build into that um, framing similar to what Doug was talking about before with the Minister's release, um, tapping into values of community, for instance. So jobs allow people to stay in communities um, for generations. Mm. Um, you can also tap into people's livelihoods, people's sense of connection and belonging, um, people's experience of the forest beyond... An economic experience. So if you ask people a question about um, what do people want a forest for, which actually has an embedded frame in it about use, mm. um, so you need to rethink about how you frame that question. Um, but if you ask people about a forest, people genuinely want to go there to experience the forest, um, whether through recreation or tourism, but they also strongly recognise that a forest is a home for other species. And that is legitimate in itself as well, that it's a home for wildlife, it's a home for birds, um, it's a home for other critters. 
Can I just add to that um, the uh, uh, 2036 biodiversity plan, the public consultation document with forests? Mm. It's a shocker because um, I opened it with Victoria's natural environment is rich in diversity, unique, unique and precious. And you go, that's nice. And then tail it with, as Victorians, we treasure the environment not just for its own sake, but its indispensable value to us as humans. So it's all very about, about us, and I'm not convinced that's the... Uh, is that um, answer... Anthropocentric. That's the word. Mm. That's the one, yeah. Mm. Yeah. And uh, I think Parks Victoria does that a lot too. They talk about healthy parks, healthy people. Mm. It's all to serve us. us. Yeah. So it's it's a challenge because the society in which we're operating in, Western societies tend to be very human-centric in that respect. Mm. And, you know, as we were saying earlier on, the dominant frames of our society and the dominant values of our society that are magnified through media and other means are often economic frames and they're often about self-interest and they're often putting us at the centre. But the research that um, Tom Crompton in the UK has done, which is building on some global research by um, Professor Shalom Schwartz, indicates that people hold compassionate values, they prioritise compassionate values. So just going back to that idea that people do care, people do hold compassionate values, they're just not the values that we activate at the moment in our discourse. Yeah. So you don't have to make them care. They already care. Yeah. Yeah, yeah right. You have to bring it forward. Open the mm. window yeah. of the heart for them. Mm. Gosh, I'm getting floral now. <laughs> Pilates for I, the I values. Work on the core. <laughs> That's right. So, Angela, say you're, compa- you're campaigning about the logging of an old-growth forest. Would you change your communications approach when speaking to someone who lives in a local logging community when compared with, say, someone who lives in Fitzroy? Mm. So we would use similar values in terms of um, that underpin. So when we're thinking about our communications, we're thinking about the values, the frames, and then the messages. So we would be using similar values and um, similar frames, and we would change the messages. Generally, we would be looking um, in that instance to build values around community and unity with nature and protection. And you'd also be thinking about some of the um, what they call self-direction values, which are associated with freedom and creativity and connection. So we would think about what are the values that sit underneath and then look at the different ways of which we frame that and then um, develop messages according to the different audiences. Okay. You've you've been involved in comms for years now, years mm. and years. Do you find it is it getting easier to engage people as when the situation is kind of getting more dire? It's a bit mixed. So there's a fine line, I think, between people being um, engaged and people closing off. Um, because, as we said before, if the news is so overwhelming, often the response is that people shut down and it's easier just to focus on your patch mm. and forget about the broader uh, world because, you know, the feeling is that you can't do anything to affect it. Um, but that said, um, generally for people, when we... If people have a lived experience, that is often the most... Um, powerful way. So with climate change, for instance, people are experiencing that now in day-to-day life. Um, So people's lived experience is actually playing quite a significant role. And often what happens is when people have an experience of something, then they're open um, to change momentarily. So if we can connect that lived experience with actually how people can be part of making a difference and be part of shifting to a more compassionate and safe world, um, then we can do that. Yeah, okay. So what's the... Um, or the, the sorry, the, the communication approach you've, you've been proposing throughout all this sounds... It sounds very moderate and it sounds very tempered. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering, is there a, uh, is there a place for expressing your own absolute outrage. Yeah. There is? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so I guess um, often people associate uh, compassionate values with soft, (laughs) and they're not. Um, So there's absolutely a place for expressing outrage and also really strong clarity of truth as well. Um, So it's not to suggest that we should be using... um, you know, gentle, soft language by any stretch of the imagination. Um, we should absolutely be using powerful language that speaks to the truth, is really clear and invites people to be part of the action. Um, so moral outrage is the way in which we talk about it, that 
um, what we're appealing to is people's sense of moral outrage of the way things are and that we know it can and needs to be better and we will be doing we will do that we'll shift to a better a better world okay so is there a critical element in communications to motivate people not just to to get on board with your campaign or your cause and not just <clears throat> excuse me not just to motivate them to care but actually motivate them to act and whether it be mm. behavior change or to to become actually actively involved in your campaign what, yeah. what what's the key element to getting people not just caring but but acting, a- acting and and making their own behavior change yeah absolutely um so i'd say there's two key elements one is that people have um, a meaningful role in that change so people can see what their role can be and that it's going to be effective. It's going to be worth their time and energy and effort to actually be part of that. So that goes back to the stories that we tell, um, how we tell stories about um, collective action and the power of what many people can do together to actually shift things and change things for the better. So we're really careful to ensure that um, we give people really clear pathways to be part of a different, making a difference and that also their pathways to making a difference together as opposed to people just working in isolation. Um, because it's one thing for people to do something on your own, it's another thing entirely to actually do something as part of a group, which also breaks down that perception gap that other people don't care or other people don't feel the way that I do. If you're doing things together and you're seeing other people out there doing it together, then it again reinforces that sense of there's actually a lot of other people who care about this and we can do it. Okay. Now, all this that you both, you, Angela and Doug, have put forward today, is this is this a, a model of communication that's been developed for our local political context or is this sort of a, is this a universal thing, like a, a best practice model that's been, that's suitable for everyone everywhere? Oh, I think... Um well, I can only probably speak for Western society, but it's it's been shown to be very powerful for Western society, framing and the values work Angela was was talking about. I haven't seen research to other cultures, but I know that my understanding is that most cultures hold all the values that we hold, mm. so I can't see why it wouldn't work. Mm. Yeah, so the work that I referred to before about um, from Professor Shalom Schwartz, um, his work is actually across... Um, over 80 countries, so a whole range of different cultures um, where people actually prioritise the intrinsic values and concern for intrinsic values. Right. Um, that's all we have time for today, for talking to you. It's been great talking to you. You're listening to Freedom of Species on 3CR Community Radio and we've been speaking with Angela Rutter of the Australian Conservation Foundation and also to Doug Gimshi from The Framing Effect. That was so helpful. It really lifted the veil on a lot of yeah, communication yeah. speak. All the things I'm doing wrong. Yeah, all, right. all over but the place. Like, oh, my God. This. Yeah, yeah. 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 And take notes and go, don't stop yeah. doing that, stop doing that, stop doing that. It's really powerful and Do stuff. this instead. Yeah. Um, we've got some community announcements. Uh, you've got one to go first, I think. Yeah, I do. Um, it's There's going to be a movie screening from... It's a keenly anticipated follow-up to the award-winning Cowspiracy movie. Um, now, it's on Tuesday, March 28th at the Astor Theatre, and it's called What the Health? Um, Kip Anderson uncovers the deleterious impacts... Or Is that the correct way of saying it? I don't know. Deleterious? <laughs> deleterious? That sounds, yeah, I think so. Impacts of highly processed industrial animal foods on our personal health and wider community. So... Um, that's going to be hosted by Animal Liberation Victoria and Raw Events Australia again March 28th, 28th at the Astor Theatre in Melbourne. I've got a couple. I've got a few. Um, first, you know, Victoria's official duck killing season is starting next weekend and that's going to go for about 12 weeks. That season's about 12 weeks. And during that time, hundreds of thousands of native water birds will be shot, all in the name of a good time. So I urge you to call your local MP this week and also throughout the season just to express your horror at this carnage. You can use Angela and Doug's communication principles when you speak to them and um, while you're at it, maybe give the offices of Premier Daniel Andrews and Agricultural Minister Yala Pulford, give them a tingle too and let them know what you think. Yeah, just to remind you, that season starts this weekend, starts on Saturday. I would frame it as an animal welfare and a pollution issue. Yeah, okay, there, top tip. Let's get the RSPCA out there for the animal welfare. We know one quarter of the animals hit 
won't die straight away. Yep. They'll die these slow deaths. And we know there's pollution um, from shotgun casings that last for a long, long time. So they're, they're your two broader frames I'd use. <laughs> okay. I, I was walking through the gardens uh, yesterday where there's lots of beautiful ducks in Treasury Gardens. I was thinking if the duck shooting season was there and mm. people saw... More their gunfire and all the ricochet gunfire affecting all the other birds. But mm-hmm. also you could see the fact that from a distance when they're flying, you don't know, you know, if you're taking out a, a bird that the community thinks is a pest, even if you adhere to those values, you don't know what top, you're shooting. Top, top birders you? can't pick the species of a duck at dusk, you know, yeah. and that's through binoculars. Yeah. So how can you do it through a gun sight? Exactly. Yeah. It's crazy. Get on board or support Coalition Against Duck Shooting. If you can't go there, I guess you can donate as well. What you can donate, you can just get on Facebook, follow them on Coalition Against Duck Shooting and they'll be um, um, keeping you up to date through Facebook through the season. They also have a Twitter account. You can follow them on Twitter. Now, um, Melbourne Pig Save is holding a rally in the Melbourne CBD's Burke Street Mall. That's going to be on Saturday, 18th of March. I think it's at 12 p.m. I'd have to double, you have to double check. They've got a Facebook page you can check, and everyone's welcome. The Sea Shepherd Marine Debris Campaign is having a beach clean-up in Byron Bay on Sunday, the 19th of March. Get along to that. Sea Shepherd Marine Debris Campaign are doing fantastic work all around the coast of Australia. They're just amazing. I really enjoyed that one we went on. Yeah, we did. Melbourne. And then yeah. we did another. I, I did another one last weekend for Clean Up, you know, um, <coughs> clean up Australia Day. I went back to the same beach at um, at Williamstown that you and I did. Did they still have the vegan barbecue at the end? Mm, nope. Oh, they didn't. But it was it was <laughs> it was amazing. Just the amount of rubbish that's just oh. just really embedded in that um, coastal vegetation, just deep down, like the amount of plastic. I just I'm I'm amazed that any vegetation grows because it's like growing through a mat of plastic. Yeah, it's terrible. I thought I thought when amazing. I went that it was like a movie set that it was a joke that they actually went the night before and just put all this rubbish there for, for us, know, to, us pick to pick up. up. But it was just <laughs> It's amazing. amazing. It's just like yeah. it's a huge a huge amount. Yeah. So everyone if if everyone did one beach clean up in their life, that would be a that would be a good thing. Also that same Sunday, the 19th of March is going to be a wildlife rescue training course that's held by Northern Rivers Wildlife Carers and that's going to be at Southern Cross Uni in Lismore. Details for all of those events are on their respective Facebook pages. They'll also make it onto our um, Facebook page, Freedom of Species, in due course. Now, so that's it for the show. Um, If you want to get in touch with Freedom of Species, you can email us at um, our email, info at freedomofspecies.org. You can also follow us on Facebook and on Twitter. Lots and lots and lots of thanks to Angela Russa and to Doug Gimshi for coming on today. Really lovely to have you on. You're welcome. Thank to, you. To get all that knowledge is amazing. Um, thanks too to my buddy M for panelling. Pleasure. And up next, stay tuned for Encyclopedia at 2pm. Now we're going to leave you with another song. This one's chosen by Angela. Do you want to just give us a quick intro, tell us what it is and why? Yeah, sure thing. So this is by the great social activist Annie DeFranco and it's the Garden of Simple and just mind the F-bomb at the start. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) Thanks very much and um, we'll see you next week. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.